Growing up, I realized pretty early on that the Lord hadn't really gifted me with uh, athletics being a part of my, a major part of my life. Like, it just wasn't going to be there. Most things I found myself to be a little below average, or maybe a lot below average in, except for one area, and that was middle and long distance running. That's about the only thing that the Lord gave me athletically. So growing up, I ran, and, and for anybody that's a runner, especially a long distance runner, you know that, that sort of the badge of honor, sort, sort of the thing that gives you like your street cred in running, is qualifying for the Boston Marathon. Because... You can't just sign up for the Boston Marathon if you want to. No, you've got to run a qualifying time in order to go and run the Boston Marathon. And in 2001, I ran a qualifying time. And in 2002, I was boarding a plane in Memphis in April to go fly to Boston to run the Boston Marathon. And I had with me uh, my MP3 player, which at that time was new technology. It's about the size of this Bible. <laughs> and uh, I downloaded some sermons to listen to. In particular, I decided I'm going to listen to a, a, a book of the Bible that I know nothing about. I've never studied it. I don't know anything about it. And the only thing I knew is that it was written by Solomon, and it's in the wisdom portion of the Old Testament. And as the plane took off, I was hearing in my headphones, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, or, or, or meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless as I took off to go run this race. And when the Monday for the race came, I took off and I was feeling really good and, and, and just the energy of the, of the race, it's electric. And halfway through, I was cruising. I felt great, running far faster, far faster than I anticipated, which isn't always a good thing. And uh, the last marathon, I had somewhat dehydrated. So I wasn't going to let that happen. So every time I was grabbing fluids, drinking fluids as I go through, and about mile 16, the combination of running too fast and the fluids I put in me came together and came out. And between miles 16 and 17, I threw up four times, and my race went from what would have been a PR to a virtual crawl as I stumbled across the finish line. And as I came across the finish line, those words rang in my head. Meaningless? Meaningless. All is meaningless. Well, if you've been here with us, you know that we're in a series on Ecclesiastes, and, and that's pretty much the theme of the book. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. And, and what Solomon is showing us is that life under the sun, meaning life in this world apart from God, is vanity. It's meaningless. That if you are not living your life for the glory of God and Him alone, you're going to find your life futile and frustrating. This book's been called the most culturally relevant book for our day. Yet it was written nearly 3,000 years ago, dealing with the condition of humanity and the things that we look to place our hope in. Today we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and like so many chapters, uh, they get a little confusing and a little difficult, and, and this one's a little bit like that, but I want to give you what we're going to see. Sort of if there was a, a theme for this chapter, we're going to see that right fear or, or right worship of God leads to joy in living. And here's what Solomon's dealing with throughout the book and in this chapter, is what is it that hooks your heart? What is it that grabs your heart and your attention other than God and seeks to take the place of God? And today we're going to see how wealth and money in this chapter, it may be the primary thing that seeks to hook our hearts 
and take the place of God. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'll start reading in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. In verse 18, he says, Behold, What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Verse 20, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is the word of God for the people of God and all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Well, right here in verse 1, he says, guard your steps when you enter the house of God. Now, the house of God is a phrase used for the temple. Solomon had built the temple. It took him seven years to build it. And people would come to worship God at the temple. And he says to guard your steps when you enter the house of God. That, that phrase, guard your steps, literally has the idea of, of watching your feet as you enter the house of God. Don't just go up to God casually or any old way you want to. No, you've got to approach him in a specific way. And, and, and the picture is even uh, in the architecture of, of the temple. One of the places I like to take people in Jerusalem, I was there with a group a few weeks ago, is to the Temple Mount uh, and the Southern Steps. Now, you've got a picture here that will show you um, all of that, just about all of that used to be under earth up until, you know, you could see maybe 10 feet of the wall at the top and then everything else was under earth in the 1970s. Since then, they've been digging down and they've dug down to the very steps that Jesus would have walked up to enter the temple. And those steps, I always point out to people, everything in the temple was built meticulously. They paid attention to every single detail in building the temple. And the steps, uh, we got a close-up picture here. I always point out the steps are, some are long and some are short. Some are deep and, and some are shallow. And there's a reason for that. There's a detail to that because you don't just run up to God without thinking who you are approaching. No, you've got to guard your steps. You've got to walk humbly, looking down, watching your feet as you walk up to the house of God. And you think about, whose presence am I about to enter? I'm entering a holy, just, righteous God's presence. And look at what he says about this. He says, draw near, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. You're going to hear that word fool three times in this passage. And that's a very scathing word to say. Here he's saying uh, they don't know what they're doing is evil. That they draw near to listen is better than offer sacrifice. Well, here's what people would do. They would come to the temple and God required a sacrifice. That sacrifice that they would offer was a picture of the sacrifice that was to come in Jesus Christ. That he would fulfill that. And they would come and do what they were required to do and then casually go away and live their life however they wanted to. They were just going through the motions. 
casually doing what was expected of them, thinking that they had done something for God when they don't realize what they're doing is evil because they're not drawing near to listen. And that word listen here, it's not merely just listen. In the Hebrew, it has the idea of listen and obey. Not just to listen, but to listen and obey. And obedience sometimes uh, gets a misunderstood in our culture that, uh, hey, we, we obey something in order to please God. We obey to earn something from God, maybe earn salvation or earn some sort of favor, but that's not what Scripture teaches. We obey God for our own good and for His glory. You see, God's the one who made you. He designed you, He knows you, He created you, and He says, here's how you best live. So if you obey God, you're going to find that you're living how God has designed you and created you to live. So obedience is for our good and for his glory. And here he says it's better to draw near to listen and obey than to just offer up a half-hearted sacrifice without really thinking about what you're doing. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 2. He says, do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For dreams come with much business and a fool's voice with many words. He says, remember who you are. He's God. He is in heaven. He is glorious. He's worthy of our worship and our praise and our honor. And we, we're on earth. We're we're far below. And he says, draw near to listen. Let your words be few. And it says, this person comes with a dream with much business. This person is coming and they, they... People don't know exactly what that dream means, but it seems to be saying that they're coming and they're thinking that they're doing something for God. That their sacrifice has somehow made them spiritual or holy or godly. And they're offering up this sacrifice, not even thinking about what they're doing, and then going away. And they're probably talking about it. Look look at what it says in in the next uh, verse, verse 4. It says, When you vow, vow before God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you, sh- you should not vow than you should vow and not pay it. Here's what was going on. They would come to the temple and they would go to the priest. And they would say to the priest, I'm going to make a vow of allegiance to God. I'm going to make a vow of a free will offering that I'll freely give to God. I'm going to make a vow of a, of a Nazarite vow before God. I'm going to vow for my children to be in service for a season before you, God. They'd make all sorts of vows to the priest. And he, then they wouldn't keep it. And he's saying it's better to make no vow at all than to make a vow and not keep it. Jesus spoke of this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, people are coming and making these vows and simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why were they doing this? Well, they're doing this apparently to, to impress others with their, with their godliness and, and how spiritual they are. So they want other people to see this so they're coming and doing what's expected but not listening, not obeying. They're casually approaching God not really worshiping him, just checking things off the list. Look at what it says in verse 6. It says, Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger, that was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase, words grow many. There is vanity, but you must fear God. So here's what was going on. They make this vow before the priest. 
Then they would come back. The word messenger here most likely is referring to the priest. And they'd say, I can't keep the vow. I made a mistake. And he's saying, your word before God, it brings anger. Their word meant nothing. That their work of their hands, it was their hands, it was for their own glory, for their own fame, that they were doing this work, and God said that would be destroyed. Notice it says their dreams increase. They continually think that there's something that they're not. They continue to be puffed up in their own pride and their own arrogance and their own religiosity and their religious practices. And their words grow many as they talk about these things. But here's what they should do. It says God is the one you must fear. There's a fear of God that all are to have. For those who've never come to know God through the person of Christ, who haven't been reconciled to him, and recognized their sin and said, yes, I agree with you that I'm sinful, and I agree that Jesus is a sacrifice for my sin, and I've turned from my sin and turned toward Jesus, there's a fear of God that's a trembling fear of God, that he is judge, and I'm not in right standing before him because I haven't trusted the sacrifice of Christ. Now, for those of us who have repented of our sin, who've trusted in Christ, Scripture refers to us as a new creation, First to us is born again. There's a, a, a fear of God that I've heard it compared more like a teacher you really respect or a family member that you love and adore and, and, and you know they love and adore you and you'd never want to do anything to disappoint them or, or let them down. You want to honor them and glorify them. That's how we're to approach God. That there's a fear of what if I'm not honoring God? What if I'm not God? Well, I want to bring honor. I want to bring glory to him and, and point clearly to him. So there's a fear of God that we approach him with and worship. Now, if you're like me, oftentimes I come here on Sunday to gather with the body. You know, Scripture refers to us as living stones. And Scripture says we're the temple of God. And, and that's a plural temple of God, meaning that all of us, the, the, those who have believed in Christ, we make up the temple of God. So this is where we come, to, we come to worship and we make up this picture in the Old Testament of the temple and it's a beautiful thing. But if you're like me on Sunday mornings, sometimes I'm just trying to get out the door, trying to keep my sanity, get the kids out the door, all these, all these other things are on my mind and I don't really stop and process, I'm about to go and worship with the body, God Almighty, glorious Wonderful, an amazing God who loves us, who cares for us, who's made a way for us to be reconciled. And I'm going to go and worship him. If you're like me, you often don't really prepare your heart and prepare your mind for worship. We can come quite carelessly like this did here. What does it look like for us maybe to prepare? I think there's some simple things we can do. I think as we're coming, we pray. We pray, God, I want to receive from you. If your word is going to be open, I want to hear you speak. God has chosen to speak to us through his word, so I want to hear from you, God. So help me come ready to listen and to obey your word because it's for my good and your glory. We each week send out what passage we're preaching on, on Wednesdays typically. And you, you can read that in preparation going, God, I, I want to receive all that you've got for me from this passage. Before we come, we can confess sin. That's part of what we do in communion. We come and we confess that God, yes, I'm still a sinner in need of a Savior. And I thank you that my, my salvation is secure in Jesus. But I want to confess. We can remind ourselves of 
who it is that we worship, that we worship a holy, righteous God who's made a way for us to be reconciled to him through Christ. We can remind ourselves of the goodness and the beauty and the richness of the gospel. That each day, even though I'm gonna face challenges and difficulties, I can wake up with great joy in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the suffering because I know my security is with Christ. We can remind ourselves of the, the beauty that it is to be able to praise God in the corporate body. So I pray as we come, we gather to worship him. Now, in the next few verses, he's talking about worship and, and fear of God and coming to worship him and right attitude toward that. And now he's gonna talk about one of the primary things that seeks to take the place of God in our lives. He's gonna talk about money and wealth. And he's gonna, in verse eight and nine, he's gonna move on. He's gonna say this, uh, eight, he says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For a high official is watched by a higher, and there is even a higher ones over them. But this is gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He's painting a picture here of a bureaucratic system. We have bureaucracies in our world, be they government or be they um, with corporations or whatever. We see bureaucracies exist and there's someone down here that's oppressing people, but there's someone over him and there's someone over him and there's someone over him. And he says, don't be amazed when you see people taking their cut and taking what they want and that it leads to oppression. Don't be amazed at these bureaucratic systems. They're gonna be there. This is 3,000 years ago that he's talking about this. But then he says at the end of, uh, of this little section, he says in verse eight, but this is gain for the land in every way. A king committed to cultivating fields. Now who's the king? What's well, Solomon? And he's saying, here's what is a blessing. He's not saying get rid of the systems, uh, anarchy, don't have anything. He's saying if you've got a king that's committed to providing for the people through fields, their provision and yet there's laws set up so that people can't just come rob and steal and there's no understanding of whose land is who and it just leads to chaos. No, it's good to have a government. But the government has evil in it. It's a necessary evil. He's painting this picture. So he says, don't be amazed when you see that. You are going to see our systems be broken. You're going to see oppression in our world. You're going to see injustice. And do we see that? Do we see oppression and injustice in our world? I mean, if you just turn on the news, you see it. We have economic injustice. We have educational injustice. We have social injustice. We have racial injustice. The list goes on and on of the injustices that we see in our world, and yet they can become quite overwhelming. And our secular world responds to them often by shaking a fist, by attacking, by getting on uh, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, to, to scream at others to demonize those that they perceive as bringing the injustice. But how does the follower of Christ do? You see, the follower of Christ recognizes, I've treated God unjustly. I've wanted my own way and went and lived how I wanted to live, and yet God has extended me great grace and great mercy that I did not deserve in Jesus Christ. And I can extend that to others. You see, we look to Jesus. How did he respond to things? Now, Jesus, did he come and fix all the government systems when he came? He didn't fix them. That's what the religious leaders wanted him to do. Jesus fixed our government systems. Our hope is in the government. No, it's not. 
It's in Jesus, and Jesus came and he didn't fix those. But he did deal with injustice in a very proactive way. When Jesus saw injustice before him, he engaged. He took action. He cared for people. He loved them. I was recently on a, on a trip, and we took a professor from a Southern Seminary in Louisville with us, uh, Dr. Seals, and he was teaching on the Great uh, Commission, and then he taught on the Great Command, love God, love others, and then he taught on something that I hadn't heard it put in these terms, so maybe it was just me that missed this, but he talked about the Great Compassion. That in Mark chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 25, that Jesus was often moved by compassion, and we as followers of Jesus should be moved by compassion in the name of Christ toward others. And Jesus said to pray for those who persecute you. So as a Christian, when I see oppression, I can pray for those who are taking part in it. Jesus said to love your enemy. That's what he calls us to do. He's who we turn to in the midst of what we see happening. And for us, if you look at all the injustice, it's overwhelming. But I believe we respond going, God, show me how you want me to engage. Put opportunities before me. And if you ask to put opportunities before you, you're going to see plenty of opportunities. That's why often uh, week after week we'll have missions moment. Just a few weeks ago we had some women up here talking about one-by-one ministries. That's where teenage girls who are expecting a child, they're pregnant, and they decide that they're going to go through, have, give birth to the child, praise the Lord, and yet they need somebody to walk with them, to help them, to encourage them in that season. And we have women that come and say, hey, I'll step in that gap. So we partner with groups like World Relief. There are refugees all over our world who are having to flee the country they live in because of oppression and injustice, and they are showing up here. And I love when I hear the stories of our members who go to the airport to greet them and say, welcome. Welcome to our city in the name of Jesus Christ. We have some members that serve with a ministry called Restore Corps. And they work with human trafficking victims, in particular, the sex slave industry. I was reading on their website that 85% of counties in the state of Tennessee have documented, documented cases of human trafficking. It's around us. We just look up and say, there's injustice all around us. God, how do you want me to respond? That's why we partner with a guy like Marlon Brown who who runs Big Dog Street Ministries where they work with the homeless population here in our city and and that was a part of his story and groups like uh, Las Americas and Sucasa where where they're working with the underserved Latino population in our city. Groups like Life Choices where we live in a nation where there are 650,000 abortions every year. For every 1,000 births, There are 186 abortions. And this group stand up saying, we'll fight for justice for the unborn, one person at a time. We have several in our our body. We have over 50 members that responded to be a part of Arise to Read. What that is is they've realized that if a student is reading at grade level in second grade, their chances of graduation shoot up astronomically. But if they're not reading at grade level, by second grade, their chances of graduation become very slim. And we've got members that go in one hour every week reading with the same students, helping them get to grade level. You see, there's, there's injustice all around. It can be overwhelming. And instead of just screaming about it, we are called to get involved in the name of Jesus. So I would say instead of us just looking and 
shaking a finger at who we see as the oppressor or whatever else, we say, God, how do you call me to engage? How can I encourage others to engage instead of shaming them for not doing enough? How can I lovingly move the body of Christ to more action? That's what we're called to be a part of. I was recently in, uh, in Bangladesh, and um, we were walking through these, they were slum neighborhoods, and we were going from home to home with, with, a, with my friend, and he was showing me the people he works with, and we went to this one house. It was about 10 by 10 foot, and they had to sit on the bed because there was nowhere else to sit, and I noticed one family member slide out, and I thought maybe they just don't want to talk to us or something. And we're talking through an interpreter, hearing how they work in a garment factory, what their life's like. And a minute later, that family member shows back up with some 7-Up and some Pepsi and serves us 7-Up and Pepsi. And we hear their story, and as I'm leaving, and, and, and I've seen global poverty so many times, uh, yet it never seems to lose that sort of shock and that sting of like, oh, yeah. This is how most of the world lives. Not like me. Most of the world lives like this. And as we were walking, I was asking my friend, I said, I said, I know y'all got the after school stuff going. What, what, all, what all can you do? He said, well, we're helping send some girls to college. And I said, well, what does that take? He said, it takes $100 a year. And I said, well, well um, what, what, will that, what will their prospects be when they graduate college? He said, well, they can get a pretty good job. They can get a job making about $90 to $120 a month. I said, well, what about that family? That, that, that family that lives in that 10 by 10 foot room. That family that, that lives in that little shack. That family where 10 people live in that room. What about them working in that garment factory? What do they make? He said, well, they work about 60 hours a week. And they make about $30 a month. And when I got home, I got back to uh, the place we are staying. I was packing up, getting ready to go. I looked on one of my shirts. And it said, made in Bangladesh. And as I looked at it, I thought, God, I don't know what to do with this. I, I don't think I can fix all these systems. It's overwhelming. There's brokenness. And, 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 I, and I haven't participated in some way, God. There's so much bureaucratic brokenness, God. But you call us to engage where we see we can. That we're to be a part of. In the name of Jesus Christ. Until he returns fighting for the cause of the oppressed and the injustices we see. That's what he calls us to be a part of. And we do this because we have a gospel perspective, bringing the good news of the gospel into all these situations, realizing I haven't been given what I deserve. I've been given far more than I deserve in Christ. Therefore, regardless of what I think, I can go and give in the name of Christ. Now he's gonna, in these next verses, verse 10 through 17, he's going to show and talk about some realities of how we look for wealth and money to provide something that only God can provide. And here's the thing, we all know this to be true in our heads, I think, or most of us do, but as far as coming out and actualization in our life, sometimes it doesn't make that, that jump. We still keep turning to these things for our hope and security. So here's five things that I, I noticed that he talks about in this passage. In, in verse 10, he says, don't turn to wealth as your source of satisfaction. And, and here's how the Bible defines wealth. Abundance. Let me ask you, do you have an abundance of clothes? Do, do, do you have an abundance of food in your pantry? Can you go and open your pantry and have food for a few days? 
Do you have an abundance of shelter? That's how the Bible defines wealth. So if you're in that category, which is most of us, I believe, you're defined as having wealth biblically. And he says, don't turn to wealth for a source of satisfaction. That can only come from Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can truly satisfy the longings of your soul and your heart. He says, don't expect wealth to develop authentic relationships. No, it's going to have people that will leech on and attach. Uh, scripture actually, some translations call it a parasite. It's only in Christ that we develop these truly deep, satisfying relationships. He says, don't expect wealth to give you peace and rest. It won't give you peace and rest. That only comes from Christ. Don't uh, hoard your wealth as it'll, it can cause personal harm. In fact, the only person that Jesus ever calls a fool is someone who hoarded his wealth, built bigger barns and bigger barns. And Jesus says, when this person died, here's what he says in verse uh, Luke 12, 33 says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with treasure in heaven that does not fail. This person was, all their hope, all their trust was in the things of this world. They didn't realize that, that we have a world to come. That, that, that we can have riches in heaven, that the riches of heaven will be far greater than any riches we can ever acquire or experience in this life. And in verse 17, we see that the person who lives this way, well, that fifth one says, don't place your security in wealth. It'll be lost and you can't take it. Our security's in Christ. We'll be with him forever for those of us who have trusted in him. This person ends up in darkness, lonely, and miserable who places their hope in the things of this world rather than God Almighty. Now in verse 18, now in verses 10 through 17, there's, God is not mentioned once because this is a perspective of godless living. Now in verse 18, he says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under his son the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift from God. Here's what he's saying. We all have a lot in life. None of us can control what year we were born. None of us can control where we were born. None of us can control what family we were born into. None of us can control all the opportunities put before us. We have a, a lot in life. And he says it's a gift from God to accept the gifts and the talents and the things that God's put before us, to enjoy food, to enjoy drink, to enjoy the work that God has given you to do. But you don't place your hope in them. You don't place your trust in them. That's only in God. When you take the perspective of hope and trust in God, you can enjoy these because... Wealth and money is just, wealth and money, it's not where you place your hope or your security. That's in Jesus Christ. And look at, look at how this person, look at the, how this person's life will go in verse 20. He says, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This person's life will seem to fly by who lives in light of worship and fear of God and orders their life after that. Their days are going to seem to zoom by. But the person who places their hope in the things of this world, their life's going to seem to be darkness, miserable, and creep by. Well, 
It's like, um, do you ever have one of those days where you're sick? You lay in bed. You can't get up. You don't want to read. You don't want to watch anything. And you just lay there. And the time seems to creep by. Versus one of those days, especially as a kid, you can remember those days as a kid, you'd go do something amazing or you thought it was amazing. You might go to an amusement park and you'd look up and you'd be like, it's the end of the day already? Seems like it just started 30 minutes ago. You see, for those who place their hope in Christ, there's going to be a joy in living. And we're going to look up and go, how did the days pass so quickly? How did it go by? Because there's this joy in living and walking with Jesus. Jesus talks about this. In 2 Corinthians 8 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. You see, whatever we think this earth can provide for us, whatever hope we place in this world, in its systems, in its wealth, in its influence, whatever hope we place is that is nothing compared to the riches that you have in eternity with Jesus. And Jesus left those riches to come on a rescue mission, to come and save us, to redeem us. He came and was poor because he entered this earth. Didn't matter how much money he had. It was was poverty compared to what he had in heaven with his father. And that's where we're going. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, our perspective is, I'm not living for the things here and now. I can enjoy them. I can work hard at what I'm doing and find joy in that. Even in the midst of suffering and difficulty of life, I can find joy because I'm his. But I'm living for the life to come. And if I can take anything that's temporary, any gifts, any passions, and throw them forward to eternity. That's what I want to be about. So in this passage, chapter 5, it's a, it's a doozy of a chapter. He says, right fear of God, this is the idea, right fear of God leads us to joy in living. Let me ask you, is there anything that hooks your heart, that just something grabs your heart to try to do things that only God can do? that you place your security and your hope in other than God. For us, it's a time to repent and say, God, I want to trust you and you only. These other things, I'm just going to let them be things. I'm not going to worry about them. You are where my hope is. You're where joy and satisfaction and delight is found is in living for the Lord and walking with him. Again, it doesn't mean our lives can be perfect, but that he's good and he's rich. We're going to celebrate communion. And communion is, it's a celebration. It's a celebration that we are right with God through the body and blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And the table is for those who, well, here's what Paul says. He says, whoever eats and drinks the bread or cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty concerning the body and blood of our Lord. Let a person examine himself. The table is an opportunity to examine yourself. As we come to worship God, when we, when we come to the table, we examine ourselves and say, God, if there's any sin, if there's anything I'm holding on to more than you, if there's any unreconciled relationships, help me go and make those right. I confess to you, God. And then I come and celebrate the work that Jesus has done for me on the cross and in his victory over death. Let's pray. God, I thank you. Thank you that your word is true. We can stand on it. We can trust it. And God, I pray that as we take communion,
that we would examine our hearts, that as we approach you, that we'd realize we worship a living God who is amazing and who is good and through the good news of the gospel has provided a way for us to be reconciled. We don't have to continue to come and offer sacrifices. No, we're a living temple worshiping a living God because the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient enough. So Lord, I pray if there are any here today who maybe haven't trusted in your sacrifice, who don't believe, who are still questioning, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them of what is true. Or if there's here, those here that have deceived themselves and think they have trusted you, but they recognize their life doesn't reflect at all, they don't listen and obey at all, I pray that they'd repent and turn to Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you'd reveal to us the areas in our life where we're holding on to something other than you. God, you are good and gracious. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The tables are open.